My wife's uncle uh, tells a story of a truck driver who stopped uh, at Waffle House for breakfast. And when he pulled up to the Waffle House, he realized that his truck and trailer were too big for the parking lot, so he had to pull the truck around the back. And so that's what he does. He pulls around the back, so it's kind of out of view. He comes in uh, to the Waffle House. He orders breakfast. He sits down and uh, has a cup of coffee, and he's just reading the newspaper, minding his own business. And all of a sudden, you hear the rumble, and they're trying to tell what's going on, and uh, the locals understood that it was a local biker gang, and they ride up on their motorcycles, and they park right in the front of the Waffle House, and they come in, and they take their seats. And it's not long uh, after they come into the restaurant that they notice this guy's seated by himself, minding his business, and they decide it's time to start picking on him. So they start kind of talking to him across uh, the restaurant. They start poking fun at him and uh, trying to antagonize him to get some sort of an arousal out of this guy and to no avail, so they take it further, and they're making everybody in the restaurant uncomfortable. They walk uh, close to him, and they begin to touch his food and kind of mess with him and try to get him to respond, and finally he's had enough, and he stands up, and he puts cash on the counter. He thanks the staff, and he walks out. Well, no sooner than him leaving does the leader of this biker gang begin to vent, and he begins to say, man, I can't stand guys like that. I just can't stand guys like that. That's no man at all. That guy did nothing to defend himself. A guy like that, he's no man at all. And the waitress responds, well, he's no driver at all either because he just drove a big rig over that row of motorcycles out in the front of the Waffle House. <laughs> That's a pretty silly illustration, but it illustrates uh, the importance of humility, just being humble. And uh, this morning, we're going to talk about something kind of heavy. And so I want us to approach God with a sense of humility, approach the opening of his word with some humility. And so I want to pray for us before we jump into the book of Habakkuk. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We are grateful to meet this morning. God, we know that there are Christians meeting all over the world whose conditions, circumstances, environment is less favorable than ours. And Father, as a church, we come before you as a gathering of your people and we repent for those moments and times where we have taken for granted the access we have to your word. The ease with which we can open your word and read it and allow it to read us. Father, we have taken that for granted at times and for that we are sorry. But God, we come into this moment with expectation. We want to hear from you. So God, we come and we request that you would speak to us, that you would plant on our hearts and in our minds your word, not the word of any man, but your word, that when we leave this place today, it would begin to shape and mold us into who you need us to be in order to do what you have called us to do with our lives. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had a situation or a season in life where you began to wrestle with the question, how am I going to get through this? I mean, how will I ever get through this, this situation, this circumstance? I, I don't know. There, there's been a lot in my life that I've got through, but this seems to be it. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I've had a lot of those moments in my life. When I first got to New Hope, I served as the student minister 10 years ago, and we were taking a group of students on a mission trip to St. Louis. Um, and much like the trip that took off this morning, there's a group, if you're not aware, of our students, Ryan and his uh, team of leaders, 
took about, I think, 25 people. They loaded up at 6 a.m. this morning, and right now they're on their way to Joplin, Missouri. So keep them in your prayers for this trip they'll be on this week. But we were on a similar trip 10 years ago, and we were in St. Louis. And on the way back from the trip, we decided to do something fun with the group that uh, we had taken to, on this trip. And we stopped at Six Flags, a roller coaster theme park. And so we were going to go on these rides and just have fun. Well, one of the other guy leaders on the trip, another one of the male leaders, Seth Jones and I, uh, you know, we were the guys on the trip, and so, uh, among others, but we had to play the macho role. Like, we can, nothing intimidates us. And so some students said, hey, why don't you come on this ride with us? This ride was called Mr. Freeze, and we're like, yeah, that's fine. Until we got up to the ride, and you begin to realize what this ride was really all about. Now, normally roller coasters don't intimidate me, and they didn't intimidate Seth, but on this ride, we looked at the ride, and we both posed the same question. How do we get out of this? Like, how are we going to get through this? And there was no going away from it. You see, when you get on this ride, it bursts you out of a very dark tunnel, and you go at a very high rate of speed, up and down and spinning all around, and you go up high and you drop down low. And normally that's not a problem for me if the ride were to end uh, like on the video where you're seeing right now. But it doesn't because you get to the top of this, and it proceeds to drop you, and you go backwards through everything you just went forward through. And for me, that was it. I was like, I don't know how we're going to get through this one, man. I don't want to do that. And so we tried our best to get out of it, but we realized we couldn't. We got in line, and uh, the students went ahead of us, but we realized with all the people behind us, we couldn't sneak out. They'd be waiting for us at the exit, and it would ruin this reputation we'd worked so hard to build up. And so because of our own pride, we got on the ride, and we made a pact that day that we would tell nobody about what we heard or saw <laughs> during the course of that ride. And I'm breaking this agreement. I think the statute of limitation wore off on it, but uh, we screamed. <laughs> we did. We were screaming, uh, we grabbed onto each other, it was intense, and we promised not to tell anybody, but he's not here today, so I'm getting away with it, I, for now. Um, maybe you've had those moments where you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, I don't know how I'm going to get past this, I've had a lot of them. And I've had them in really serious times in my life too, where during a really difficult season of life, I've had to wrestle with the same question, how am I going to get through this, how, how is this actually going to end? I remember when my mom died, getting off the airplane, asking that question. And I flew home the next day, and I thought, how in the world am I going to lead my non-Christian family through this season? I don't know how I'm going to do it. Maybe for you, it's a diagnosis. You sat down with a doctor, and they told you something you didn't want to hear, and you thought, I don't know how I'm supposed to get through this. Maybe you're wrestling through a divorce or a really bad breakup. And you just think to yourself, man, I, I can't deal with this kind of pain, this difficulty. Or the loss of someone that should have lived a lot longer than they did, and you loved them dearly, and now they're gone, and you're wondering, I, I don't know how to get through this, this season. The loss of a job and an income. And there's all kinds of things, a kid, one of your kids not living a godly life, and you're wondering, I don't know how to get through this season. Might be some sin that you're struggling with, an addiction. I, I don't know how to get through this. I, I've seen a lot in my life. I just don't know how I'm going to get through this season. If that's you, if, if you're wrestling with that right now, or you've asked that question at some point in your life going through a certain circumstance or situation, or you would say that question defines my reality, then the book of Habakkuk was written for you. The book of Habakkuk was written for you. We're in a series right uh, through the summer called Majoring in the Minors. We're looking at the minor prophets. Now, they're not minor because they're insignificant. They're minor because they're short. They're short books packed with major truth. And so we want to look at these major truths that apply to our lives. And Habakkuk will answer this question or at least help us uh, wrestle with this question of how in the world do I get through this 
this morning. Now, last week we took a break from the series, and I invited my former friend Heath to come in and preach uh, for me. And he had a great sermon, didn't he? Except for this one part. There's this one part of the sermon that I was like, I don't know, man, where he called me out. Now, I'll have you know, he did ask me what, how I was doing before I complained about the heat, okay? <laughs> but I really don't have a response for it. I tried to think of anything I could say to justify being able to complain about the cold and the heat, and there's nothing. I just realized after 10 years, I may, in fact, actually be becoming a Hoosier. Uh, <laughs> my powers are fading, um, and I, too, am disappointed, just like you are. <laughs> Next thing you know, I'll own a cat. Uh, this isn't... <laughs> It's not going in the right direction. Let me uh, encourage you with this, though. Uh, This is really fascinating. While we're on the trip, this is going to apply to the book of Habakkuk. So I want you to hear it now and then see how it applies. Uh, uh, I got to sit down with my aunt. Now, my aunt's my mom's uh, sister. And uh, for 15 years, I've been uh, walking with Jesus and trying to talk with family members. None of them are Christians and share the gospel. So at Thanksgiving, my aunt and um, my her brother, my uncle, and um, my cousin, they came up and had Thanksgiving with us, and my wife had this really neat um, tablecloth that we could draw on during the Thanksgiving meal, and so we're all drawing, and I had this opportunity to share the gospel with them, and so I laid it out doing this picture thing that I use, and uh, I shared the gospel, and she said, man, I think that's true, but I'm not ready. Well, on this trip, we are um, sitting there eating, and she says, hey, I've been thinking about what you drew on the table since Thanksgiving, and I think I need to make a decision to become a Christian. And I thought, whoa, she said, will you baptize me? And no kidding, earlier that morning we had solidified that Heath would come and preach here so that I didn't have to fly home. Because if I had to fly home and preach last week, I wouldn't have been there to baptize her. Fifteen years of praying and laboring for this. And so that day, the next day, we met at the beach and I got to baptize my aunt into Christ. And I got to baptize my daughter, too. Uh, And so God had worked this situation together in a way that I couldn't see. And he delivered it, right? After a decision was made for me to stay down there with my family, then we get to participate in this. And so I got to send Heath a message. Hey, look what happened. Because you, you are willing to preach. So he was here last week. It was really a cool, just a really neat weekend last weekend. Now, you'll see how it applies to Habakkuk here in a little bit. But this book, we don't know much about this prophet. We don't know a lot about Habakkuk. We know that when, he, when we open the pages of this minor prophet, we begin to realize this doesn't read like the other minor prophets. This reads more like a conversation between a guy that's really confused about what's going on around him and God, who is in control of everything. It doesn't read like a sermon or like a prophecy where he's saying, hey, you need to do this or you need to pay attention to this. Instead, it's more like a conversation. And you begin to pick up really quickly that Habakkuk's struggling. He's really wrestling with everything that's going on around him. The people, Judah, had become so corrupt. There was so much injustice and difficulty and perversion going on around them, and he could not wrap his brain around, how are we going to get through this? Like, it's so bad, I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And he began to wrestle with the same question many of us have wrestled with in seasons of our life. How am I supposed to get through this? How am I supposed to lead God's people through this? How are we supposed to, as a group of people, get through this season of immorality? Because it's really, really bad. And he begins to open his heart up to God. And we get a glimpse into that. And one of the lessons you get to learn right away, I want you to keep with you, is this. You learn this from Habakkuk. God is okay. He is perfectly okay with your struggles, your questions, and your doubts. (coughs) He welcomes it. 
I like to say it this way. God, God welcomes the intimacy of your honesty. Right? He welcomes the intimacy of your honesty. One preacher said it this way. God does not drive an ambulance. Meaning, he doesn't show up on the scene of an emergency unprepared. Nothing you've gone through has caught him off guard. Nothing that you're experiencing is a shock to him. He is ready, able, willing, and capable of hearing everything you have for him. And we're going to get a glimpse of just how intense this is allowed to be by studying Habakkuk together. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Habakkuk says this concerning the, the people around him. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now when I first read that, I'm thinking, are you, can you talk to God like that? Like, are you serious? Like, God, why do you look at all this horrible stuff and you don't do anything about it? Why don't you save? Why do you even allow me to have to see this kind of pain and injustice and you do nothing about it? You're not doing anything about it. How long do I have to cry to you asking you to help and step into this situation and you're not doing anything? Where are you, God? You realize the book of Psalms, the book of Job, all these places in the, in the Old Testament, God welcomes this. He's perfectly comfortable with it. Now, we'll get to God's response here in a minute, but consider this. This book... God allowed to be part of the canon, the, the complete work of the Bible, and he's preserved it for thousands of years, which means, yes, he's perfectly comfortable with the conversation he had with Habakkuk. Otherwise, it didn't need to be preserved. God wants us to learn a lesson here. God wants us to study this book and get a really valuable lesson about our own hearts and our own lives. Okay? Next thing to think about is this. What is it that Habakkuk's struggling so much with? And it's the injustice and immorality that's going on around him, that's going unpunished. The wicked... Are, are succeeding in everything that they do, and the righteous aren't. And that doesn't seem fair. God, why aren't you doing something? How are we supposed to get through this season? And maybe you've wrestled with similar things in your life, this, this same thing Habakkuk's wrestling with, where Habakkuk says, God, if you're all-powerful, then you're capable of fixing this. And if you're all good and all-loving, you should want to fix all of this. But it looks like you're either not all powerful or you're not all good because this is still happening. Philosophers and theologians have wrestled with this for forever. In fact, you, little did you know, right, that the, this is in the Bible, this wrestling match with if evil exists and continues to exist in the world, God, how can he be all powerful and all good because wouldn't he eradicate it? Now, we, we're not going to have time to just spell out the answer to this. It's not hard to dismantle that argument, but God kind of does that with Habakkuk in, in in the preceding verses. Look at how God interacts with him and really addresses this problem, this wrestling match that Habakkuk has in his heart. He says, uh, God continues in verse 5. He says, look among the nations and see. Now I want to pause there just for a moment. The same two words in the Hebrew language that Habakkuk, now normally you don't need to bring up the original language, but this is really fascinating to me. Habakkuk says, God, why do you look upon evil and do nothing? Why do you let me see this and you don't save? God then takes those same two words that Habakkuk used and he reverses it on him right away. He says, now, Habakkuk, I want you to look among the nations, and I want you to see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. I love that. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. 
So God responds using the same words that he used here. And he says, look, I want you to pay attention to something, Habakkuk. I want you to look around. You're going to be completely blown away because I'm doing something that if I told you the details of what I was doing, you wouldn't even believe it. Meaning, just because you can't see what I'm doing doesn't mean I'm not doing something. Let me illustrate for you this way. If we had, I like one preacher used this illustration. I really liked it. He said, if I put an elephant in the middle of this room, like a physical, actual elephant, we marched him in here and he's in the middle of the room. And then I asked you, do you guys see the elephant? What would you reply? Three of you. All right. So the rest of you, I think, would see it too, right? It'd be an elephant in the middle of the room. Yes, we see the elephant. But what if I told you, hey, there's lice in the room? Yeah. (laughs) If there's lice in the room... Now, the next person to touch their head is going to be looked at, like, suspiciously, right? And now everyone's head's itching, too. Your head itches right now. It really does. But you, look, just because you can't see the lice doesn't mean they're not there. And this is what God is saying to Habakkuk. Look, just because you can't see what I'm doing and your finite ability to understand things doesn't mean I'm not doing something incredible. He says, I'm doing something so incredible you wouldn't believe it if I did tell you. He's pointing to even a future salvation. And he's saying, I'm going to do something so incredible in saving my people that it will bring me an incredible amount of glory. And this is introducing to Habakkuk just a sliver of hope. Not all the answers, not all the solutions, not perfection, but hope. Hope in the midst of difficulty is what gives us the ability to keep going. There's a really famous um, experiment done at John Hopkins University. It's been written about uh, pretty extensively where they took rats and they put them in water. And they found out that about after 10 minutes, a rat... That's about all, or four minutes, that's all they could take. Four minutes, a rat would drown after four minutes. But if during that first four minutes, you took the rat out of the water for 30 seconds, two different times. So you pick him up, 30 seconds, you put him back in. You pick him up a second time, 30 seconds, you put him back in. That rat could swim for 60 hours. All you had to do it in the first 10 minutes. It blows your mind. You're like, are you kidding me? Changing nothing about the circumstances except introducing a sliver of hope allowed the rat to swim for up to 100 times longer than it would have without that hope. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, I wish this would work in other situations, like we were driving back from Florida with my infant son, and I'm convinced in his car seat, he was believing this is my new existence. So he'd flip out. I want out of the seat. And we'd stop and get some food and stuff, and we would be like, all right, you see, this is just for a little while. You'd go to put him in the seat, and it was like a WWE wrestling match. It was like... (laughs) Get in the seat, and we got to buckle him. Now, but, but hope, this is what hope will do. When you can grasp a little bit of the hope, this is the message of Habakkuk, that just when you think you can't go any further, God lifts you up just enough so that you can keep going. This is the message of the gospel. The gospel message tells us no matter how bad life gets, this is not the end of the story. God is doing a mighty work, and even when you can't see it, he's still moving in a powerful way all around you. And this is what God wants to remind Habakkuk about. I'm working in a very mighty way. So maybe you're here today and you're saying, like, I'm not feeling the hope. My life, I'm I'm struggling with my kids or my finances or our marriage is on the right. Like, it just doesn't seem like our marriage is going to survive and no one even knows that we're struggling. I don't know how to get through this next season. Rob, I'm at the end of the rope. I have no hope. I can't fully understand this message today. The message of the book of Habakkuk is to give you that hope. What I really appreciate about this book is that even after God gives him the hope, he's not done wrestling. He's not done struggling. You see, Habakkuk will go on and he says, God, I don't understand. Like, like I get you're doing a mighty work and that's great. But how is it that you're going to go and take a corrupt people to teach a corrupt people a lesson? 
how are you going to teach someone who's more corrupt to come in and punish us for being corrupt? I can't wrap my brain around. Look how he struggles with this in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked comes and swallows up a man more righteous than he is? He says, look, I know I just got done complaining about Judah, my people, and how corrupt and unjust and all this. All that was going on, I understand. But how are you going to take someone who's, like, at least we're more righteous than they are, and you're going to bring them in to come and punish us? I can't wrap my brain around this. And he kind of comes to the end of himself. He's like, well, this, is this how it's going to be forever, God? Like, is this going to go on forever? We're, we're continually just battling this? Where's the end? How are we going to get through this? Because I don't see, like, I know you're working, and I believe that you're working. I just really wish I knew how. I just really wish I could understand a little bit more about what you're doing, because I don't get it. And he comes to the end of himself there at the end of chapter 1. And I love how chapter 2 starts out, because he says, look, I, I have nothing left. I just got to give this to God. And so he says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, I'm going to take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, what he will say to me. What's God, how's he going to respond to this? I don't get it. And what I will answer concerning my complaint. So I've got this complaint. I need to go to God. I'm at the end of my rope. I don't see how this is going to work out. Now the watch post, the tower, they were put in the middle of vineyards, in the middle of cities. And they were intended to be a place where you could watch out and look to see any harm coming to the vineyard or any harm coming to the city, like an enemy coming in. And the reason that you would go up in the tower, yes, for visibility, but also to eliminate distraction. It was a place that you could actually focus. It was a place that you knew that no one was going to distract you from what you needed to be paying attention to. And so he says, I'm going to go to this place where distraction's eliminated, where I can focus on what I need to focus on, and I want to come to God with this complaint and say, Lord, I'm willing to wait for you. I believe that you're working. I want to have faith in this, but I don't fully understand what you're doing. And I love that, but I wrestle with it too. Because I get that we're supposed to bring all of these concerns to God. My struggle is, after I leave the tower, I still struggle. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a really famous preacher, um, from a while back, and he said it this way. He describes this struggle this way. He says, but we're still not satisfied, even when we bring things to God and we don't know what to do. We go on our knees and we tell God about the thing that is worrying us. We tell him that we cannot solve this on our own, that we do not understand, and we ask him to show us his way. Then, the moment we get up from our knees, we begin to worry about the problem again. That's where I'm at, too. Comes to the end of himself, Habakkuk. God, here's my concern. This is creating anxiety in me. I'm really worried about this. I'm struggling through this. I don't see the, end of the, the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know how you're going to work here. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. He brings it to the Lord, and he's waiting. God, how are you going to respond? And I'm convinced when we honestly seek that from the Lord, he meets us in that place. Look at how he responds. Look at how God responds to Habakkuk. Verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. Meaning, hey, I've got a bigger vision. It's coming, and it's going to come at the perfect time. Like, it's not when you think it is. It's a bigger than that, and you're not going to be able to fully understand this. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, meaning the enemy that's coming is puffed up within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. So he says, look, I've got this bigger plan, and we're going to accomplish it. It's going to work out well. I promise you that I'm working here. You can't see it all, but you need to believe me. Just trust me. 
Just wait. I'm working here. It's going to work out for good. I promise you, I'm at work in this situation. And so Habakkuk wrestles through that, right? He goes, in chapter 2, God says, look, this is what I'm going to do. For the rest of chapter 2, he says, this is what I'm going to do to that enemy. I'm going to destroy him. I'm going to teach the Babylonians lesson and you lesson. Ultimately, I'm going to bring about salvation. And then I love what happens in chapter 3. Habakkuk, after getting this incomplete response, incomplete meaning not satisfying, like I don't have all the details and planned it out. I don't know every single thing that's going to happen so that I can live completely comfortably. But God says enough, like, hey, I've got a plan. I'm going to punish the wicked. The righteous will live by faith. And you remember what, here at New Hope, numerous times we've defined faith as this. I believe the facts, meaning what God has done in the past, and I believe that he's done all of that. I trust the promises because I know what he's done in the past. I can trust the promises and I obey the commands. That's biblical faith. I believe the facts. I trust the promises. I obey the commands. And so he says the righteous, the ones who are right with God, that's how they're going to live. And so how does Habakkuk do it? Well, he shifts his attention there in chapter 3, and almost poetically, he begins to dwell on God's word. And for Habakkuk, he goes back to the book of Exodus, and he begins to think through what God did when he delivered his people. And he begins to really dwell on it, like, oh, man, even though I don't have all the answers, look what God did in the past. I know what he's done. I know what he's promised. I know what he said he's going to do. He delivered, and the Exodus is when God delivered his people from uh, Egyptian control through the plagues and through the splitting of the Red Sea. And he's like, God, you did all that. Like, man, look at what you did. I know I can trust you. And I thought in my own life, when I'm in my darkest moments, what is it? What is it that I want? Well, what I desperately want is I want all the answers. I'm being really honest with you. I want all the answers to everything I'm experiencing. I want to know the solutions. What I need, what my soul needs, is to be uh, closer to the Lord. That what I need more than the answers in my dark moments, really, is for God to reveal himself to me in that moment, for him to be all that I need. It's the only thing that sustains us and gets us through. And for Habakkuk, he went back and dwelt on the Exodus. For me, I go back to certain passages, and I want to share a few of them with you. These are passages that have really helped me in some of my most difficult moments in life. And I'm going to put them on the screen and read them to you in a moment. And maybe they'll help you, and maybe there's other passages that you go to. But I'm convinced that there are times where we are battling, not every time, but there are times when we are battling depression and anxiety and difficulty and frustration and pain. And we go to a lot of sources when the ultimate source that wants to work on our hearts and on our minds is God's word. Now, that's not every situation. I understand that. But in a lot of the situations, we miss out on the greatest source of power to get through something that we have. So let me read some of these to you and see if they'll minister to you in the season you're in right now. Or, look, we are all one phone call away from having to wrestle with this question. Everyone who can hear my voice right now, you are one phone call away from having to wrestle with the question, how am I supposed to get through this? And the first thing you should turn to in those moments is God's word. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, the Apostle Paul says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's just a, a, a truth statement. We know that if we love him, it doesn't happen in our timing, it doesn't happen exactly how we want it to, but God works, all things come together for good. Perhaps my favorite one, and I've read this in a lot of living rooms, and had to read this in a lot of dark moments in my life, comes from Revelation chapter 21, where the Apostle John writes these words, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I don't know a more perfect picture of intimacy than wiping the tears from someone's hurting eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making right now, I am at work doing something that you can't fully understand. I am making all things new. Ephesians chapter 3, the apostle Paul writes these words. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened in your moment of weakness, strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts and through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Friends, I have a lot of regrets in my life. I I do. I think back on decisions I've made, experiences I've walked through. I've got a lot of regrets, but one thing I don't regret is walking with God through my darkest moments. Is allowing Him with His Word to minister to me in those moments of doubt and fear and uncertainty with the power of His Word. And when you position your heart in the watchtower and you are honest about your pursuit of the Lord, in that moment He meets you and it may not answer all your questions. I wish it could. But it will give you something far far more precious than the answer to your questions, and that is the knowledge of him who did for you what you could not do for yourself. And when Habakkuk did this, and he positioned his heart in this place, and he dwelt on what God had done in the past and what God was doing and what God would do, it repositioned his perspective. And he ends his, his prophecy, his, his book, with what Ben described earlier in the service as the mo- one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament, and it is. I want you to see the change of heart that Habakkuk had from chapter 1, verse 2, to now chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to read it to you in the New Living Translation. I like the way that it reads. It says this, I tremble inside, trembled inside when I heard this. My lips quivered with fear. My legs gave way beneath me, and I shook in terror. I will wait quietly for the coming day when disaster will strike people who invade us. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet, despite all of that pain, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer able to tread upon new heights. As sure-footed as the deer... No matter what's going on around me, I can be sure-footed. I can have confidence. I can get through this. Though I don't have all the answers, I can get through what I'm facing. Habakkuk came to the conclusion that the greatest thing that God could give him was a knowledge of who he is, an understanding of his presence in the midst of the pain, a glimpse of hope as to the plans he has to save the whole world and bring himself glory. And I'm convinced that we see this with more clarity in our pain than in our joy. If you and I were to have a cup of coffee and sit down and discuss your life, I think some of the most valuable lessons you've learned in your life would have come from some of the darkest moments in your life. 
some of the greatest pains teach us the greatest lessons. Unfortunately, that's the world we live in. That's how we learn. That's what we walk through. I think pain is a great teacher. And C.S. Lewis articulates this beautifully. Now, he was familiar with pain in ways that few of us are. And his works have really ministered to me in some of my darkest moments. He wrote two books in particular, The Problem of Pain and A Grief Observed. I cannot recommend those books enough. Lewis is someone whose mother died at a, when he was a very young kid. So he knew her, had memories of her, but she, was, she died when he was young. His father then emotionally abandoned him, and he writes about this. His father just emotionally abandoned him. He suffered from a respiratory illness throughout his childhood that caused him to get picked on and made fun of. He left for World War I and was wounded at war. When he came home, he fell in love with the love of his life, and she died young. He had to bury his wife. And he takes all that pain, and he begins to articulate what God is doing in and through that pain in his life, and it ministered to my heart. And in that work, he articulates pain perfectly, and he says this, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. And J.D. Greer is a preacher who tells about another preacher named George Mueller, a 19th century pastor who had an orphanage. And at this orphanage, uh, they didn't have a lot of resources, and so they were constantly running out of resources to take care of these kids. And George Mueller became a prayer warrior. In fact, a lot of his prayers are written down, and they're pretty like, powerful prayers that were consistently being answered. I mean, this guy would sit and pray for these kids, and when they had no food or milk, and all of a sudden there'd be a knock at the door. Very true story. Knock at the door, someone just giving them excess stuff. Over and over and over again, all these needs are being met because he was just laboring in prayer. Well, then, in 1890, his wife contracted rheumatic fever. And he said, oh, I'm going to pray for her like I prayed for all these other things. And he began to labor in prayer and prayer and prayer and prayer, and then she ended up dying. In the midst of his greatest grief, the last verse that he read to her before she died was Psalm 84:11 that says, No good thing will God withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Then he preached her funeral. And at her funeral, he read from Psalm 119, verse 68, that says this. In the midst of this pain, he says this, You are good, and you do only good, God. See, he and his wife had learned that the goodness of God in their life was better than life itself. It was better than the, the trials and the difficulties and the pleasures and the joys of life. So when you're going through that season and you say, man, how am I supposed to get through this? How am I supposed to weather this? This is so hard. How, I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. How do I get through this? Well, you go to the watchtower. And you walk with the God who is good, even when life is not good to us. And you lean into the God who has done for you what you could not do for yourself, who wants to change your perspective and remind you that above all else, you are loved. You are loved and you are cared for in the midst of it all. Let's pray.